Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 107 of the Speaking Club podcast. Mexican drug gangs have developed a methodology for getting people to buy into their ideas. It's called plato or plomo, which means lead or gold. Or to put it another way, die or get rich. Apparently it's quite effective, but I'm not sure those pesky employment laws will make it suitable for the corporate world. Which is why you should listen to this episode. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So... If you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Welcome to the show and thanks for joining me again. I've got another doozy of a guest for you this week. His name is Greg Sattel and he's been about a bit. He spent 15 years living and working in Eastern Europe where, among other things, he managed a leading news organisation during Ukraine's Orange Revolution. And during that time, he became friends with one of the main protagonists of the revolution. His work has appeared in Harvard Business Review, Barron's, Forbes, Inc. and Fast Company. And he's considered one of the foremost experts on innovation today. Greg also speaks around the world on these topics and works with leading organisations too. It was after I read one of Greg's books, Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change, that I knew I had to get him on the show. Not only does he have some brilliant advice for innovation and getting ideas adopted, but he's a fantastic storyteller who recognises and advocates the power of humour in building a following. And what's not to like about that? And we cover a load of ground in this interview, and there are some amazing tips for speakers, for organisations and for entrepreneurs alike. But just before I switch to the interview, I wanted to give you a heads up that I'm going to be doing four, yes, four free live workshops in mid-March. And in those, I'm going to be sharing my blueprint for creating powerful talks with stories and humour that engage and sell. This blueprint is called My Heart Map, and it's the centrepiece of my story-led speaking system. And I'm going to be sharing the map showing you how it makes it simple to create talks which not only deliver aha moments but overcome objections and lead people to buy into your idea, your product or service without being pushy or sleazy. And this blueprint, my lovely heart map, works for talks, webinars and podcasts, basically any format where you want to influence people to make a change. And the best bit is that if you attend... Not only do you get me showing you the ins and outs of it, but you get to take away your own copy of the heart map. How good does that sound? Well, if you fancy that, go and register for your place at thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass. And I will look forward to seeing you on on one of the workshops. Right, time to get the good stuff from Greg. So welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, Greg Sattel. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really curious to talk to you about your stuff, and it's so interesting. But let's start off with your journey. Now, you've, you've had quite a, an interesting journey to what you do today, and I want to get into that. But what I'm curious about is 
given where you ended up, what did you actually want to do when you were little? Oh, I, when I was growing up, I guess, I don't know what I wanted to do when I was little, but when I was in uh, high school and college, I, I wanted to first go into finance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is back in the 80s and Wall Street and the uh, masters of the universe until I actually went to work on Wall Street and I found it incredibly boring. <laughs> so it wasn't so, as sexy as you thought it was going to be. No, working on a trading desk, there's, you know, a few minutes of frenzy each day. And then most of it is you're, you know, just sort of sitting around <laughs> waiting for something to happen. And then I started working in media mm-hmm. and I was working for a, a large corporation in New York. And then somebody offered me a job in Warsaw, Poland. So I figured I'd go out for six months for a, a bit of adventure and I ended up staying in Eastern Europe 15 years. Wow. And so that job in Warsaw was, was a media role as well, was it? Yeah, just just working as a ad salesman for a, a business journal. But I eventually started running media businesses and stayed, like I said, stayed for 15 years and had a big career in media in Eastern Europe. Cool. And so how did that then translate into what you do today because your two key areas of specialism and, and this is only from what I've gleaned from the outputs I've seen in terms of your books are innovation and transformational change so how did you go from running media businesses which I'm, I'm sure those are very relevant for that but to, to actually what you do today which is sort of writing and speaking about those things well um both came from sort of very concrete life experiences running media businesses in the 90s and the aughts you know, your business was constantly being disrupted, especially by digital media, but also because of other types of media change, the fragmentation of media, and there was lots of trends. So there was always this incredible pressure to innovate, and I was never quite sure how to go about it. And everywhere you look, it seems like somebody has a different idea about innovation. You know, you look at something like design thinking, which I don't know if your your listeners are familiar with, but, um, you know, Steve Jobs swore by it. And, you know, the design firm IDEO has, has built a fantastic practice behind it. Stanford University has built an entire school behind it. You say, oh, wow, that's really, you know, that, that really must be good. So you look into it and it says, okay, well, you know, you need to start with the needs of the end user and then work back and rapidly prototype and iterate your way into a solution that's much better. You say, oh, that that really makes a lot of sense. And and that must be the way you do it. Until you read Clayton Christensen and The Innovator's Dilemma and Disruptive Innovation and all that. And he says, that's how you go out of business by by paying too much attention to your customers when the basis of competition changes. They say, well, how can both of those things be true? And then there's something called open innovation and there's lean startups and, you know, business model innovation and, and on and on and on. And there's this like confused jumble. So I wanted to figure out how that works. So I spent about 10 years figuring it out. And what I came up with was that uh, innovation is really about solving problems. And there are as many different ways to innovate as there are different types of problems to solve. So what I came up with was a way of uh, classifying problems in order to uh, match them with the strategy most likely to solve them. 
and it uh, turned out to work quite well. Brilliant. Uh, one of the interesting things is there's very little that was actually new in my book, Mapping Innovation. What was new about it was that I was integrating all these ideas in, in, into a way that you could actually use them instead of just championing one idea or the other. Because what I found was the way a lot of businesses get stuck is they find a way uh, to innovate that works. And they say, oh, wow, this, this works. And this is our innovation DNA. This is how we innovate. And then they find a problem that doesn't fit. And they just kind of spin their wheels for a while. There is a, an argument with, you know, find what works and do more of it. But in right. a sense, you're saying that's true, except when it's not true anymore. Except when it's not true, right. Um, and there's also, you know, complacency. It's really important to explore, to leave some of your business unoptimized uh, so that you create new businesses. If you look, you know, we get, we get really caught up in the sort of Silicon Valley-centric view where these really new businesses like Facebook and Instagram, Google to a lesser extent. But the newest thing is, wow, that somebody just created a billion dollar business in, in just a few years. That's That must be like a really great way to do things. But first of all, those are usually businesses that just won the lottery, right? I mean, Facebook is a great business, but most businesses based on, on social networking failed. I mean, there were hundreds of them. Mm. Just like there was hundreds of car companies in the early 20th century. You look at businesses that have really lasted through multiple technology cycles. You know, there's businesses like Procter & Gamble and IBM that are over 100 years old and still on the cutting edge of their industries. That's really impressive. Even, you know, if you look at a company like Microsoft, which has not had an unprofitable quarter in over 40 years. Wow. Gosh. <laughs> you know, and I think we see signs of that at, at Google as well. And the way they do it is they're constantly, it's not so much how they solve problems, uh, but that they're always looking for new problems to solve. I mean, if you look at a, a business like Amazon, which started off selling books and now oh, my garage, yeah. in, in cloud computing, completely different type of business. It's a really interesting thing. So, so that's that's how I, I became so interested in in innovation. Transformation was a, a little bit different. First of all, one of the things I noticed in writing my first book was that innovation is really a process. It's never a single event. It's a process of discovery, engineering, and transformation. And it's often the transformation thing that takes the longest. You know, somebody comes out with a new invention or a new product, and we think it's going to change the world. But often it takes decades after, you know, if you look at, let's say, electricity or internal combustion, the first electrical power plant was in the 1880s. And, and the first car was, was also built around that time. But those technologies didn't have real impacts until the 1920s. So that transformation process really, really takes a long time. But where I really got interested, it was funny because I actually started working on Cascades, which was my second book, before the first book, Mapping Innovation. And it came from my experiences running a major media company, a major news organization as well, in, during the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And I was just amazed how thousands upon thousands of people who 
would ordinarily be doing very different things would all of a sudden stop what they're doing and start doing the same thing all at once in almost complete unison. And I thought that would be a great thing to be able to do because I, I had all these thousands of potential customers buying all very different things. Wouldn't it be great if I could get them all to buy the thing I was trying to sell them? You know, and I have hundreds of employees all with their own ideas. Wouldn't it be great if I could get them all to embrace the initiatives that I thought were important? But I had no idea how to do that. Um, but I, a few years later, I uh, was in Silicon Valley and everybody was talking about social networks. We had a very large digital business. So I thought, well, this is something I should learn about. So I started re researching network science. And what I found was like a complete mathematical framework for almost everything that happened during the Orange Revolution. So that's what got me hooked. And I started researching movements. And eventually, I met my friend, Sir Ja, who uh, basically overthrows countries for a living. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about him later. Yeah. yeah. He started off as a student activist and helped lead the movement that overthrew Milosevic in, in Serbia. And since then has trained activists in, I think, about 50 different countries from Georgia and, and Ukraine in, in Eastern Europe to Egypt, Zimbabwe, Burma, and on and on and on. It seems like wherever Sir Ja goes, uh, you Trouble know, follows. goes up <laughs> six months later or something. So That's he, really cool. He's, he's, uh, he's been both uh, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and also declared a terrorist by the United Arab Emirates. So he's a very yeah. interesting guy. Yeah, definitely. And I want to come on to that. I just want to revisit something that you said, because I'm quite curious. So I absolutely agree from the work, research that I've done around that time thing, because I was thinking back when you were saying how things take time and transformation takes time to people like Clarence Birdseye and the Elon Musk, who actually had to create the infrastructure for their products because it didn't exist. Things take time to get hold, especially if they're brand new things. Well, you know, we tend to think that inventions change the world, but they don't. It's ecosystems that yes. change the world. You know, yeah. if you think about something like a car, you need roads, you need gas stations, you need all these types of things. And a lot of the impact of the automobile is in seemingly completely unrelated things. Because once you had adoption of cars, because you have roads and because you have gas stations and because you have not only those physical man manifestations of uh, infrastructure, but also skilled mechanics, people who can service cars, then people start changing their behavior. So instead of going to the corner store for groceries every day because they, they need to carry it in their arms, they start, you know, making a trip to the supermarket once a week and eventually shopping malls. So the entire retail industry changes. Manufacturers switch factories from being in cities where they're close to customers to out in the country where land and labor are cheaper. So if you think about all the impacts of a car, it's it's all due to this secondary ecosystem that, that builds up around the invention and then secondary inventions beyond that. Same thing with electricity. If you think about computers, you know, you said the PC in 1980, 81, or the Macintosh in 1984, that's when 
the computer industry started. But actually, we can trace the personal computer way back to 1968 in Douglas Engelbart's what's called today the mother of all demos. Um, so it took a long time to really get a, a consumer product. It took more than a decade, 10, 15 years. But the the impact didn't come until the late 90s. We didn't see a measurable impact on productivity from computers to the late 90s. Again, because there was no infrastructure. You, you know, you needed, you know, you not only need computers, you need effective and useful applications. And to make effective and useful applications, you need people who understand the computer technology to learn how to work well with people who understand problems that need to be solved in the real world. And that doesn't just happen. That's not a technology problem. That's a human problem. I think you're absolutely right. And this is something that I talk to business owners that I work with as well around every solution creates more problems. Even if you create a solution for something in terms of your product or service, with that, people always have problems that then can create more products and services for you to sell to solve the problems that your original solution caused them. It's interesting because since since Cascades has come out and mm. we're building this business around transformation with transformation workshops and advisory services, what we're finding is a lot of the transformation that many firms are interested in isn't around necessarily new ideas. They're around already established ideas like design thinking or agile development or lean enterprise. But the problem isn't where do you get these ideas? The problem is how do you get them adopted yes. throughout a organization as a whole, yeah. which can be very difficult because there's lots of product managers who've been working in, in waterfall for 25 years and they feel they're good at their jobs and they don't, you know. So how do you overcome that opposition to change? Because, uh, you know, a lot of people have been getting on with, with the way they've been doing things for quite some time. And, uh, and, you know, you think about that. Those aren't new ideas at all. They're, you know, 10, 20 years old. And a big part of the transformation efforts that we're seeing is organizations struggling to adopt these. And they're using some of the methodologies that I wrote about in Cascades to actually push them through. And I think that's why your books work so well together, because I know this from my days in corporate. You know, I'm a Prince 2 practitioner and, and these project management methodologies always miss out the change piece, the people piece. And, the, you know, your two books work so well together because you've got the innovation piece, but you need that adoption and the change, the transformation piece, they really blend well together, I think. Well, one of the things that we found is that We've had this change management industry around for 40 years. Mm. One of the things that we found is, is that it really doesn't work, and nobody <laughs> even thinks that it works. You know, McKinsey has estimated that they've done research that suggests something like three quarters of transformation, of organizational transformations fail. Yeah. That's an enormous amount. Anything else, you know, if three times out of four you fail, I mean, most people would quit, right? And there's companies that do change certification and all this stuff. And I haven't found anybody that thinks it really works. I mean, and a big part of the reason it doesn't work is because if it's a significant change, you know, if it's anything more than an incremental change, there's going to be 
significant opposition. There's going to be a certain proportion of people who really don't like it. And they're going to do whatever they can to undermine it. I mean, I think all too often we have this implicit assumption that once people understand change, they will embrace it. But that's not true at all. (laughs) Most people hate it or enough people hate it to derail it. So if you look at, you know, what traditional change management tells you to do, you know, things like create a sense of urgency around change, communicate the change. That's great for rallying some people to the cause, but it also alerts those people who don't want the change to happen that they better start undermining it or it actually might happen. So because the the Cascades methodology is based not on some corporate idea, (laughs) but on social and and political movements where the idea of resistance and opposition is right up front. It's much more focused on how you overcome that opposition. And another interesting thing as well is we generally find out about transformations in a corporate environment or an organizational environment, usually only when they're successful. First of all, we hardly ever hear about failures. And even with the successes, we, we usually only hear about them when business school professor or consultant interviews half a dozen people and writes up a, a case study, which, which, can be, which can be quite helpful and quite constructive. But compare that to a social or political movement where we often have thousands upon thousands of contemporary accounts from every conceivable perspective. Just the documentation is so much better. When I went to people involved with some of these big organizational transformations from, and I I interviewed everybody from the former CEO of Blockbuster, which was certainly a failed transformation, but also key executives from IBM back in the 90s with the Gerstner revolution to a a major cloud transformation at Experian, the, the, the big credit bureau. Yeah, yeah. When I went to try and validate the findings and see whether they have any relevance to to what they felt and saw, often I, I would ask them, well, did this happen? And they said, you know what? It did. But is that normal? <laughs> and, and, and I said, actually, yes, it is. But it, they just thought it was a funny little thing that happened to them. And funny enough, in, in some cases, the the people running these organizational transformations they seem to be almost finishing the sentences of my friend, Sir Ja, who overthrows countries for a living. Wow. So it was amazing that you saw that kind of, of consistency across very, very different contexts, people with very different personalities. I think all too often we take things like political revolutions, social activism, and organizational transformation. And we put them in, in very different and separate boxes. Okay. Yeah, but they actually, they're very similar and have many things to inform each other. It works the other way as well. In the, the Serbian uh, revolution that overthrew Milosevic, they looked as their role models, not so much Gandhi or Martin Luther King, but Coke and McDonald's and you know how to build a brand, how to, to market yourself. So I thought that was interesting as well. No, it's, it's, it is fascinating. But I guess the thing is, 
And the reason there's so much correlation between all of these things is that there are humans involved. And essentially, the human condition and, and the things that drive us are, are pretty universal. That's quite fascinating. Now I can talk about this stuff with you for ages. It's fascinating. Interestingly, a lot of the network science concepts that seem psychological, they also work you know, with computers in a network. Some of the same phenomena work with computers in a network. I mean, these are physical laws. Really? They work with molecules in our bodies. Wow. That same idea of a network cascade. Obviously, psychology has something to do with it as well, but there's also physical laws that drive it, which I thought was just fascinating and, and nothing I ever expected to find. Just reading a book by Bruce Lipton called The Biology of Belief, and he's a cellular scientist. But this whole idea of, that you were talking about, about ecosystems and, you know, effectively the cells joined together because it was about survival. And it, it's just there's so much correlation between all of this stuff and, and what we see in the world and in business. But um, I've got to ask you, so the Mapping Innovation talks about a lot about how businesses can stay relevant. And with the lifespans of business becoming shorter and shorter, what tips have you got for businesses and and I guess also because this is relevant for speakers as well because this show the the audience is is speakers is how do you avoid becoming obsolete in in today's world well not to oversimplify it but I think (laughs) there is a pretty consistent formula that if you don't explore you won't discover if you don't discover you won't invent if you won't if you don't invent you will be disrupted eventually it's just a matter of time if you look at a business like GE, right, yeah. um, which recently, I mean, after decades, of, you know, after a century of enormous success, nearly went bankrupt. And my particular view of it, I, I mean, y- you can lay it at the, the proximate cause was that they invested a lot of money into its power business and and natural gas turbines when people didn't want to buy natural gas turbines and that business wasn't growing anymore because the of the shift to to renewables but the even bigger problem is is GE hasn't really invented anything since you know CT scanners back in the 1970s that's a very very big problem mm. similarly uh, if you look at a business like Kodak you know people say the big myth about Kodak is, well, they invented digital cameras, but you know, then they never commercialized them. It's not true at all. They had one of the best-selling lines of digital cameras. They were leaders in the digital camera industry. The problem is that there wasn't that much money in digital cameras. There was, you know, where the developing film was a real cash cow. Uh, so again, The problem wasn't so much that they didn't make good business decisions. The problem was that they didn't invent any new businesses. If you look at a company like Procter & Gamble, which continues to create new billion-dollar brands, or even like IBM, that seems to get its entire business disrupted, you know, like once every 20 years. I mean, the cloud completely killed their business. Yeah. But they're still... You know, and, and they've taken their lumps for sure. But you're still talking about a very, very profitable business that's on the cutting edge of new technologies, whether it's blockchain or quantum computing or neuromorphic or whatever. And you see the same thing at, at a company like Google, which has this fantastic cash cow 
very much like Kodak. But at the same time, you know, they're investing in things like self-driving cars and medical technologies and and all sorts of, of new things because they understand at some point, you know, search isn't going to be all that profitable. Yeah. And you need to build the arc before the store. But so you talked about some of those companies that have had like years and years. Are they innovating or are they acquiring? I don't think it's so much innovating or acquiring because because acquisition can be a good innovation strategy if you look at a company like Cisco. Yeah. Um, uh, and all of these companies are certainly acquiring. Again, like Google, they're, they're investing a lot of money into or a lot of effort and resources into their building a, a competitive quantum computer. But they're also investing in other quantum computing companies that have a very different and actually a competing approach to their own. So I think you have to do both. But I think the the real issue is you can't just depend on adapting. Everybody says adapt or die. And obviously you need to adapt to, to the way the world changes. But think about that. When you're adapting, you're already losing. You're reacting, aren't you? Yeah, you're, you're already yeah. behind. Yeah, yeah. That, that, nobody talks about how, how Apple adapted to the smartphone or how Google adapted to the search engine or how Facebook. And in fact, when those companies, when Google tried to adapt to social media, they failed every single time. Apple, whenever they've tried to adapt, generally have not done it very well. So it's much more important to prepare rather than adapt. That's fascinating. So I'm just watching um, on Netflix, there's a, a series called Mars, and it's marrying some sort of do- documentary footage from 2016 and set some fictional first human exploration onto Mars in 2033. And one of the things that they're showing is Elon Musk has built SpaceX for Mars. Like he's already thinking that far ahead. It's fascinating. Well, so I think... I think there's two competing things. I think first, every great business has to have a vision and a mission. Mm. Yes. And I think if you look at Elon Musk, he certainly has that, right? You mentioned SpaceX because he dreams of, of going to Mars and becoming, as he says, an interplanetary species, but also Tesla. Yes. Wasn't just to make a car, but to save the planet, to make renewable energy a, a, a reality. But the way he went about it was very, very different. Instead of, because I think we get it in our heads that you always have to go after the largest addressable market that you can find. Where what I found in my research is when you have something very new and different, that's the worst thing you can possibly do because large, large markets tend to be fairly well served. Yeah. So if you look at a business like Tesla, he didn't try and make a car for everybody. He made a very, very specific car. He said electric cars have lots of weaknesses, right? You have range anxiety. You, you don't have an infrastructure around them. It's a new technology. They're not really dependable. People don't know what they work. But they accelerate much faster than gasoline cars. So he made a, a really expensive car. Not for parents to pick up the kids at soccer practice, but for Silicon Valley, you know, millionaires to, you know, impress their friends during, you know, at the weekend. That's how he first got the traction that made Tesla. And he had a, a long 
blueprint of first we're going to build the sports car, then we're going to, you know, make something a, a little bit more and then eventually get to a, a mass vehicle, which he's he's pretty much followed. Yeah. So instead of looking for that large addressable market, what you will really want to look for is what I call a hair on fire use case. So somebody who needs a problem solved so badly that they almost have their hair on fire. So either they've got budget for it that they don't know what to do with, or usually they've scotch, scotch taped together some solution <laughs> that really doesn't work that well. Because those are the people who are going to be willing to work with you and to overcome those inevitable glitches and snafus you have that tend to happen when you're when you're starting a business. Yes, it comes back to that niche thing, targeting those early adopters. And then uh, there's an article, I don't know if you've read it, called A Thousand True Fans, which is about finding that slice. And then from there, things can, things can get bigger. I'm not crazy about the whole concept of early adopters, mm -hmm. right? Because first of all, what's an early adopter? What does one look like? I mean, we're all early adopters in different ways, right? Depending on the context. And the problem, um, presumably. Yeah, so... I did a story in Harvard Business Review about this one company that came up with a process for transforming carbon emissions into useful chemicals. So the first thing they looked at is ethanol plants because ethanol plants, they emit a lot of CO2. Mm -hmm. So if you can just take that CO2 and use it to make more ethanol, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But the first immediate, when she, when she actually went and started talking to the ethanol plant, they said, unless it's $10 million investment, I, I'm not even going to look at it. It's just too small scale. I can't deal with it. And that would have been, there's no way she could scale up to that. It would have back bankrupted the company. So it wasn't that they weren't early adopters. It just economically didn't make sense. sense. Where specialty gases which are much smaller market, but they have lots of problems. They're very hard to, to transport, um, and there's lots of supply disruptions, and, and they tend to be very, very essential, uh, even though there's not massive volumes of it. So for those people, the idea that you could just put a, a device in your factory and have constant access to it, rather than having to keep a bunch of this stuff in inventory so you don't run out of it, that was a much, much better initial use case rather than, you know, where you can actually start building a business, making sales, scaling up, gaining traction before you can scale up to, to something like an ethanol plant. And we've seen this story repeated throughout, you know, you think of mini mills like Nucor, um, similar type of story. This is a story that's repeated again and again and again throughout time and across industries. Which is a brilliant segue into uh, the next thing that I wanted to ask you. So one of the things I loved about what I've seen of you speak and your writing too is your use of stories. Uh, you just referenced a couple there, especially Cascades. The beginning of that was just like one story after another. Have you always used stories to sell your message? I think that it's important to show rather than just tell. Mm. So many speakers, and you see this, I think the biggest thing when you're starting out speaking, because most, most speakers have some sort of corporate experience, and they say, I know how to present in a boardroom. No, I'm very successful, so I'm going to go and tell people how I've been successful. But it's a very different audience when you're a professional speaker. 
right? There's not, and even within a boardroom type of environment, it's really important to show rather than just tell. And stories are a great way to do that. Another really, really uh, important concept when when you're speaking is to start with a specific case. A man was walking down the street and he got, you know, hit by a car, whatever. Start with this specific case and then work up to the general principle where our natural inclination is to do the exact opposite, to talk about a general principle and then try and uh, come up with specific cases that that provide the evidence. In speaking, it's much better to, to start with the evidence first and then explain what it means. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's absolutely one of the things that I talk with my students about. Is and this is why you know I don't know if you have those in America, but over here when we have like charity telethons, they will focus in in one child or one family, uh, mm-hmm. because we get emotionally invested and it's more relatable for us at that level to then you know extrapolate that to the impact on Africa or continent or whatever it is. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's, I also think it's important to create if you look at the basic elements of the story where you have exposition, tension, and then resolution. It's important to pull in that tension as early as you can. Yes. A while back, I saw this, this one woman speak who was so incredibly compelling. She ran an organization who helped women across the world who, who, who live in repressive environments. And she talked about this one particular woman who's basically kidnapped by her family to be to be married off to you know some one of these horrible situations and got word to her office and that's how she started the talk and throughout the whole talk when she was explaining what she does and how you're thinking what happened to this woman <laughs> and you you know you're like on the edge of your seat because she had introduced that tension very very early and if you think about great novels you know it was the best of times it was the worst of times mother died today or was it yesterday it's so hard to tell the best novels the best opening lines all happy families are alike all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way those great opening lines they introduce tension in the very first sentence. I've never been able to do that, but I do make an effort to make sure it's on the first page of my book. I'm sure you do. I think I was selling yourself short there, but you're right because like this is something I, yeah, I talk about as well. You're absolutely right because we've got those two chemicals. We've got this dopamine, and we've got this other one called noreprimefrine. Mm-hmm. You know what gets us uh, on the dopamine side is the anticipation of reward. On the noreprimefrine, it's tension. So if you can create a gap and that cliffhanger, then you've got them at the edge of their seat because right. they've got the curiosity, which hits both of those chemicals and and everything else. So absolutely right. Yeah, <laughs> it's cool. But it's really. <laughs> But also really important is that you resolve that tension by the oh, time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. can't forget forget <laughs> to do that. You know, you can't you can't go the other way and just admire the problem, right? Where yeah. you know, oh well, we have global warming. Isn't that a really big problem? Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, yeah. it is. But that's not very helpful. Yeah, so. exactly. If you pose a question at the start of your talk, you better have resolved it by the end. Absolutely <laughs> right. right. Good. I've got a background in comedy and I believe the power of humor as a doorway to influence. You've mentioned how uphaw you sort of use Monty Python rather than those usual change icons like Gandhi and so on to get ideas for their campaigns. Can you talk a bit more about this? What they did 
and why you think they were successful. So you're talking about the revolution that overthrew Milosevic in Serbia. Yeah, and the, and the sort of uh, chickens and the... Yeah, and, and the, the student-led organization was was called Otpor, which yeah. means resist in, ah, okay. in Serbo-Croatian. I mean, first of all, just Serja inherently is a very, very funny guy. <laughs> But it was also their experience. So there was sort of a long line of things. Their plan all along was, they said, listen, if we can mobilize people to get to the polls, we can win the election in 2000. And if we can win the election, Milosevic will try and steal it. And that's our chance. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they had thought that far ahead, right. and and that's exactly what happened. But in 1996, when they first had these massive uh, wins in these local elections, at first, Milosevic had refused to recognize the election. So they had these massive protests, and Serja was was one of the leaders of the youth movement. And he said that they had to do things to keep people occupied. And so they had to come up with pranks every day. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think he's got a natural gift for it. But but at the same time, you know, we had to keep people coming out. We had to keep them occupied every day. So we needed to come up with a bit of prank or street theater every day. And then when they started Otpur in 98, they started just from where they left off. So instead of... They knew that they couldn't appear angry. They needed to attract. You can't overpower. You need to attract. And this is the same thing we found in our organizational work, that you can't say you need to adopt this. You need to go find people who are already excited about the change and empower them to bring in others who can bring in others still. And you're empowering them to succeed. So one of the early pranks they did was... They, they called it their barrel prank. Yeah, so, and it was very, very cheap. They just went out and got like a rusted out old barrel. And they put a picture of Milosevic's face on it. And they put a sign on it that said, smash his head for a dinar, which was worth only about two cents at the time, but didn't matter. They took it to the most fashionable street in, in Belgrade and they put a stick next to it. And people walked by and they sort of sniggered. It was a little, little bit funny and you know, they feel a little uncomfortable but inevitably finally someone came up and broke the ice and they put a coin in and they and they smashed the barrel and then somebody else comes in and somebody else next thing you know there's a whole line forming and uh, and before long the police show up but they don't they don't know what to do right because they can't arrest people for smashing a barrel that's be ridiculous it would cause a huge outcry and they couldn't do anything to the Otpur guys because they weren't there they were down in a cafe down the street <laughs> laughing their heads off so all they could do was was arrest the barrel and you know this is belgrade so they have their little yugo police car they're trying these overweight cops are trying to wrestle this enormous rusted out barrel into their tiny yugo police car and they're getting you know and they just look ridiculous and of course Otpor had photographers there they that they had alerted so the next day in all the big newspapers they see these cops looking ridiculous and you know the one thing that a regime can't afford is is to look ridiculous but the idea that um instead of being angry you, you can think instead of getting a bullhorn and 
talking about how bad the regime is or everything like that, they they were funny. It was witty. It was something that people wanted to join. People said, wow, those guys are really, that's that's really great. Mm-hmm. So, And it wasn't just them as well. There was another example I really, really like. In, it was during martial law in Poland after the Solidarity Trade Union had been outlawed. And many of the leaders were, all of the leaders, in fact, were either in prison or in hiding. And they needed desperately to show the world that solidarity was still a force in the country, right? Because they needed support from international institutions like the UN, NATO, US, Radio Free Europe, uh, the media, the Catholic Church. And they needed to show that they still had the will of the people behind them. One of the things they tried to do was a media boycott. But, you know, it's kind of hard to create a whole lot of noise about something you're not doing. Yes. I mean, people sitting at home in their in their flat, not watching the evening news, it doesn't create. Yeah. But it's the residents of a small town outside Lublin called Shvidnik, they came up with this brilliant idea. Every night at seven o'clock when the state-run news would come on, they would go for a walk. And some people would, you know, turn the TVs and hang the cords out the window to show they're not watching. And then some took it even a step further. They would actually take their TVs with them and put them in baby carriages or wheelbarrows. So you can imagine it was a lot of great fun. And of course, the police, they couldn't arrest people just for taking an evening stroll with their tv <laughs> and with with their tv or without their tv but it was fun and it was funny and it quickly spread all throughout poland and it eventually got so bad that the regime had to move the curfew up to five o'clock so people couldn't go for a walk but at that point they look ridiculous again and the regime couldn't look ridiculous. And they were shown to be bankrupt. And people said at the time, you know, when you're walking with the whole town and people are have their TVs out, the power of the regime is they make you feel alone. And when you do that, you don't feel alone anymore. So that's why it's uh, so important to have, if not humor, attractiveness. You know, yes. you need to attract. You can't try and overpower. So much, so many lessons in those things for, for marketing and business are all applicable across the board. That's brilliant. So what do you consider yourself first and foremost, a businessman, a writer or a speaker and, and why? I consider myself a businessman above all, I guess, because the writing and the speaking came later. I didn't start writing until I was 40 and I didn't uh, really start speaking until I was Till three years ago, I guess, that was when I, I, I first really got serious about it, right before my first book came out. But running a business is something I've always liked doing. Okay, cool. And so I just want to switch into like your process for putting a talk together. How, how does that work for you? Oh, that's a great question. I start with what I want to say, meaning mm-hmm. what's the effect I, yeah. I want to have. And then I, I sort of work back from there. But it usually comes pretty quickly, the initial idea, because, you know, usually there's some good reason for it, right? What's much more difficult is to take that talk and make it a good talk. And that's really a lot of trial and error. So 
you know, you do it the first time and you, you know, some things work, some things don't. And then over time, you just, you just need to hone it. It's, it's just work, you know, you got to keep, keep working at it and keep getting it better. And eventually you get to a place where people really seem to like it, but you also have to be really honest with yourself about what's not working and why it's not working. And, you know, we're all works in progress. So it's always, like I say about transformation, it's always a journey. There's never, there's never one particular destination. Yeah, it's, and I think that's a really good point around the sort of iterativeness of it. So you know, my background is comedy. And in comedy, you're always, you know, trialing material, recording material, listening back, hearing what the, how the audience reacted and then ditching stuff or changing stuff and trying it again. And I think that's something that maybe some speakers don't do that process. And I think underestimate almost to get a great talk. You do need to put effort in. You know, you, you're not going to just bung up out a bunch Nobody's of Nobody's that brilliant that they can just... No. I, I saw one speaker, and in the United States, we have something called the National Speakers Association. Yes, I know. Yeah. I know you have something similar in Britain as well. Yes, we do. Yes. The Professional Speakers Association. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I, one guy came to our chapter in Philadelphia for the NSA, and he actually had his manager recording and making notes about each applause line or each laugh line, how long it went. <laughs> what they did differently so that they were going back and actually having some, I think that's a little extreme, but yeah, I, I think, you know, you definitely need to iterate and hone and, and work on it over time. You're not, if you think you are going to, to knock it out of the park first time out, it's just not going to happen. Like anything else, you need to iterate your, your product development. At the same time, you shouldn't get too discouraged. Yes. You know, there's, everything can be fixed. Yes, absolutely. My sort of mantra is dare to be crap, right? <laughs> I like that. I like that. There's no, there is actually right. There's no failure. There's only feedback. <laughs> and that's yeah, getting better yeah, for yeah. next time. Although you know, sometimes, you know, that feedback can really feel like a failure. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a hard thing to do. Most people can't do it. You know, putting yourself out there and, and especially when it's an idea that's important to you, mm. it's really hard. So uh, mm. it's important to build up a, a support system and, and also to, to give yourself a break. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay. So you shared some brilliant stuff. Um, beyond the books and your writing, how do you work with people and organizations? You, you've mentioned it briefly. Do you go in and do transformation workshops? How, how do you do that? So our focus now is, is the transformation workshops. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been incredibly rewarding. One of the things that we consistently hear from people is we go into an organization who's, who's trying to drive this transformation. And they say, we expected to come in here and you tell us how to make change easy, but instead you told us how hard it is. You know, you showed us <laughs> how hard it is. And I think that's really important to ask those really, really hard questions in the beginning. Like mm -hmm. one of the questions we ask in, in the workshop is, if, and this is towards the end, we say, okay, now that you have your whole change and you know where you're going, how would an evil person try and undermine a change? And they say, and they start thinking about it and they, they say, wow, you know, we're really vulnerable. Someone's going to do this, that, and the other. Obviously, there's nothing you can do to prevent that. But when you understand the possibility of it happening, we had one agile transformation effort where they were trying to 
have the entire organization adopt agile development techniques. And they said, wow. They said, we are going, and it was actually a, a, a government. And they said, wow, we are going to be on the hook for any project management failure. <laughs> that whether we had anything to do with it or not, you know, you can imagine just somebody running to the media, oh, this big project failed because of this crazy agile. agile. So you can't do anything really to prevent that. But knowing that it can happen, you can at least prepare for it and be in a much better position to, to mitigate it. And so we do the workshops and then the, the ongoing advisory, and it's really uh, probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done because when we start with these teams, you know, there's is so much fear, you know, that on the one hand, they're excited about the possibility of driving a major transformation like this, but also they're not quite sure how to go about it. So giving them the tools to overcome that resistance is, is really incredibly rewarding. That's brilliant. And I think there are lessons also for for speakers here. It's a slight, slightly adapted version of that. But when you put a talk together, one of the things that I always teach, and you probably do this maybe naturally because of your background, is to think about, you know, people will often have that epiphany, you know, oh, well, that's a great idea, but then have objections come up around different aspects, you know, their own beliefs, external stuff, the, the actual thing itself. And, and thinking through what those objections might be so that you can knock them off in your talk to get your message across is, is a good thing for speakers to do as well. Well, I don't think thinking through is enough, quite frankly. I think you actually have to go and listen. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, really yeah. listen to yeah. what those, those objections are. Yeah. It's completely fine to say that's a ridiculous objection, right? I mean, I mean some objections are just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. some simply don't make sense and people just don't want like the idea and don't want to have anything to do with it. And, yeah. and, and that's fine, but it's, it, it's really important to listen and you know, you can let people know where you stand and still be uh, respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really important to, to understand what are the vulnerabilities of your idea and what those objections might be, and and to really take them to heart. And what I found in in my research is what eventually shifts, because we often see, if you think of something like LGBT rights, back and forth for for literally decades, every time, you know, it seemed like every time they, they would win a victory, they would incite some legislation that would take it away. Yeah. Every revolution inspires its own counter-revolution. And you can have this kind of tennis match going back for decades. And the only thing that ever breaks the deadlock is uh, an appeal to shared values. So, you know, in, in LGBT rights, you know, it shifted from we're here, we're queer, we're different, and they were spinning their wheels for, for decades. But when they shifted to, we want the same things you want. We want to live in committed relationships. We want to raise healthy and happy families. Things change very, very quickly. And I think this is true with speaking as well. I was recently at a conference. When I'm at a conference, I I try and attend the whole conference as best I can. And I I think, A, I I think it's it's more respectful. Yes. And I I also learn a a lot more. Um, And uh, it was a two-day conference. I was the keynote speaker on the first day. The second day was uh, another actually 
quite well-known speaker. Uh, and he, he just came on the second day and I think he, he, he left almost as, as, as quickly. And he asked me, what's the audience like? I said, well, they're a really, really smart corporate tech audience. And his specialty was consumer technology. He got up and he was talking all about consumer technology, where the audience was people who implement huge enterprise systems. He didn't seem aware, but there was he didn't build a sense of, of shared values yeah. with, with that audience. And I think that's, that's, that's really, really important because people will listen to you if they feel that you share their values. They'll yeah. at least give you a listen. They might disagree on the particulars, but if they feel that you, you share their values, they'll give you a listen. If they don't feel that, that you share their values, nothing you say will make a difference. That's really useful advice. That's brilliant. Smashing. Thank you for all of that. Now, before I let you go, I have a few standard questions, um, which I ask all my guests. The first thing is, what's the best thing speaking has done for you? The best thing speaking has done for me is introduce me to some other really interesting speakers. I've met some (laughs) of the most interesting people in my life who were, you know, other speakers at, at conferences I've been to. And have you had sort of the worst gig have you had one of those bad gigs that you was like oh no that was not good or one of those bad experiences I had one one in particular where I I didn't really know what I was doing and I spent uh, and it was like a two-day retreat for small business owners and I was giving them a sort of a version of a keynote when what they really needed was a workshop and I had no idea how to do it. So that didn't go over very well. But it was a learning experience, I'm sure. <laughs> it was a, a learning experience. At least I, I knew that there was a lot more to learn. Brilliant. Okay, um, next question. What is the book that you've read that's had most influence on you and why? That's a really, really difficult question. Um, I would say today, and my answer would probably be different tomorrow. Fine, yeah. Uh, a Mathematician's Apology by G.H. Hardy, which is just a very wonderful short book. It has all these great quotes in it. G.H. Uh, Hardy, if, if your audience isn't aware, was w- one of the greatest mathematicians in, in history and certainly one of Britain's greatest mathematicians. And he was this set uh, at the you know, early in the 20th century in, at Cambridge that included John Maynard Keynes and Bertrand Russell. And, and what I thought was great was how humble it was and how he was so much looking to discover, as Richard Feynman would call it, the pleasure of finding things out. And one of my favorite quotes is, and I, I'm not sure I'm going to get this completely right, he said, but he said, for any serious purpose, intelligence is a rather minor gift. <laughs> coming from him, who really was one of the great intellectual centers. I mean, Cambridge in that time mm. was, you know, it was the birth of theoretical physics. It was the birth of Keynesian economics. It was the birth of DNA. I mean, logic, Wittgenstein, you know, on and on and on surrounded by really some of the smartest people of the age. And for him to say, for any serious purpose, intelligence is a rather minor gift. Uh, He also said, uh, it's not worth a first-class man's time 
to hold the majority opinion. By definition, there's already enough people to do that. <laughs> I like that. I'll put a link. I really enjoyed that a lot. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, penultimate one. What's the best piece of business advice you've had, and why? So, probably the best piece of business advice I've had is that uh, good selling is never wasted. So, <laughs> you know, if you present yourself well, eventually it will come back to you. I like that one. I like that one. And then the final question: If you could have a mentor, they can be. Alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? I would choose my stepfather, who's who passed away uh, 15 years ago. I, I wish I had appreciated him more when he was around, but uh, he was amazing. He, you know, he knew lots of important, lots of CEOs during his time, and they all sent very nice letters uh, when he died. But what was really amazing wasn't their reaction, but that of their secretaries, because for decades he would go, he would not only uh, come and greet them and say, hi, how you doing? He would say, and how's your son, Scott? He's a sophomore at college now. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he would, he would take such an interest in everybody he met, even the, the UPS guy, which I, I don't think you have UPS. I understand. Yeah. It's like a postal service. Yeah. The postal service guy. When he heard that he died, he was you know, like in tears. I mean, he had that kind of effect on everybody because he took an effort to make everybody around him feel special. And I think that was such a wonderful quality and, and one I, I wish I, I paid more attention to when he was alive and learned to do better earlier. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. And thanks for sharing all the stuff that you have. Really appreciate it. Now, if people want to find out more about your books, about your speaking, maybe book you for speaking, or to work with your organization around transformation, what's the best place to go, Greg? The best place to go to for, for speaking or workshops or advisory is my personal website, gregsatel.com. Mm-hmm. And also uh, digitaltonto.com is my blog. Excellent. Okay. And are you on social media as well? Yes. Uh, Twitter at digitaltonto.com. You can feel free to connect with me at uh, LinkedIn. And uh, there's a Facebook page, which I don't use them very much anymore because Facebook pages have become much less effective. Good. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time to share all of those wisdom and the stories. It's been lovely talking to you. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, check out Greg's stuff. It's, it's definitely going to be worth it. Thank you very much, Greg. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was awesome. So much good stuff. You're probably going to need to listen again. I probably will too. Check out Greg's website and Digital Tonto, and of course his books too. All the links are in the show notes for you. Just to say, with regard to the books, uh, if you use that link, it is an affiliate link, which will mean that I get a couple of pence if you buy the book using that link. It won't affect the price you pay, but I just wanted to be completely upfront about that. So thank you for joining me again. I hope you enjoyed the show. And as usual, if you did, I would so love it if you leave a rating or review. And at this point, I wanted to send big thanks to Nora M. Alzrani, who left the latest review. You made my day, Nora. And I'm chuffed that you're enjoying the show and finding it useful. Well, that's it from me. If you want to spend an hour or so learning live with me, then book your space on one of the workshops over at thespeakingclub.com. Have a great rest of the week and make sure you go out, grab your life by the nuts 
and get cracking. Bye-bye. Hey, if you're listening to this show because you want to start speaking or have a big talk or pitch coming up and you want to make it the best it can be, then you made the right choice because this podcast is the vehicle that can help you get there. But I wanted to tell you about something that will get you there even faster. Something that incorporates all the hacks, tools and tips I've picked up from my years in comedy, theatre, marketing and coaching. And that's my blueprint for creating and delivering a story-led talk that engages, inspires and converts. And the best bit is that I'll be sharing my blueprint and the mindset hack that will help you overcome public speaking anxiety in a free webinar masterclass. To register, go to thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass. This puppy gives you the soup to nuts for creating powerful talks that connect with and engage your audience every time. So grab your place now. That's thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass.